So today, in my inbox, I got another quote that was perfect for the retreat. I thought, I don't know whether these people know I'm teaching a retreat or not, but it's nice that they're sending me some sort of fresh material every day. And it said, it's from Krishnamurti, and it said, if you begin to understand what you are without trying to change it, then what you are undergoes a transformation. Hmm? If you begin to understand what you are without trying to change it, of course that's the key, isn't it? Then what you are undergoes a transformation. So a little bit ago, I was doing some reading, a few weeks ago, and I came across this story. The ancients say that once upon a time, a disciple asked of the elder, Holy One, is there anything I can do to make myself enlightened? And the Holy One answered, as little as you can do to make the sun rise in the morning. Then of what use, the surprised disciple asked, are the spiritual exercises you prescribe to make sure, the elder said, that you are not asleep when the sun begins to rise. So, okay, you've been here for almost a week and you've heard a whole lot of talks and a whole lot of instructions You've heard a lot of stories from different ones of us, and you have spent lots and lots and lots of hours on the cushion and walking back and forth. I don't know if anybody calculate how many hours, sometimes somebody does, you know, but it's a lot, right? It's a lot every day. So you might very well ask, well, then why am I doing all of this? if it isn't, you know, going to guarantee enlightenment. And will these exercises ever make insight arise? And what is this enlightenment thing anyway? What does that mean? And will it happen to me or could it even possibly happen to me? And if so, what can I do to make it happen? It's a good question, really, you know. And, you know, in our culture, we so often think that we can make something happen, don't we? It's inherent in our culture. It's an obsession in our culture, you know? So if only you eat the right foods in the right amounts, or if only you exercise in the right way, you know, maybe you have to run, or maybe you have to do yoga, or maybe you should do Pilates, you know, like that. Or if only you read the right books, or listened to the right recordings, or attended the right retreats, or found the right teacher. It's all, you know, somehow we keep hoping we're going to find the key to make something happen. There was a retreat I was sitting some years ago. I think it was at Spirit Rock, but I'm not sure. And somebody had a t-shirt. 
and the t-shirt said, do not improve. That was a great t-shirt. Don't you wish we could all have, it would be nice if we had them, we could hand them out at the beginning of a retreat, you know. Everybody could have t-shirts on that said, do not improve. So this practice, as is true with probably most spiritual practices, it's not about making anything happen. You know, it's really true. There's as little as you can do about that as you can to make the sun rise. So what we are doing is we are preparing ourselves, right? We are preparing ourselves to be ready when the insight arises so that you see it. To be ready when wisdom arises. To be ready when the heart opens. Or to be ready to see and hear whatever comes along. So the basic premise in Buddhism is that mostly we don't see clearly. We haven't trained ourselves. We don't see clearly. We are ignorant. That's where we start. Not ignorant in a really pejorative sense, but ignorant in the sense that we just don't know. You know, ignorant and so uneducated. And so the untrained mind, and the somewhat trained mind, is often clouded with endless desires and endless aversions and endless delusions, and it's all about I and me and mine. We sort of live in the I, me, mine cocoon, I think, sometimes. So this is, I think I'm going to lose my mic here. It's like stumbling around blindfolded, you know. And often what happens, you know, we bump into things a lot and we bump into people a lot and we bump into ourselves a lot and we hurt ourselves and others and after a while you realize, okay, I've got to do something about this. This isn't working, whatever I'm doing. And probably all of you have been to that place because you wouldn't be here if that were not true. So we realize we need to wake up. We need to be able to see. So you've done what you've all done. Decide to go to a retreat, you pick up a book, you attend a sitting group, you find a teacher. But what you're probably also now realizing is that as you do that, does anyone ever say, okay, I have the answer for you, you know? And if anyone does, you should probably be pretty cautious because that's not necessarily such a good idea. But we still, we would love for it to be simple and we would love to have a way to wake up easily. So one way and another, pretty much all spiritual practices demand that we let go of our preoccupation with ourselves and that we begin to pay attention. So I actually found this story that I just read to you about the elder in a book of reflections on, about the rule of St. Benedict, which I happened to come across and I'd never read anything about the rule before, so I was interested. It's the rule for all the monks and nuns who have followed the the uh, teachings of St. Benedict for over a thousand years now. It's a long time. 
And um, it teaches the people who follow that rule how to live in a community as a practice. And there's 73 rules, and it includes, you know, what to wear and how sleeping arrangements are set up and what to do about work and what to do about recreation and how often to pray and how to speak and when to speak and then what do you do when someone breaks all the rules and they don't behave and all that kind of thing. So monks and nuns in the Buddhist world are under very similar rules. Um, precepts, they're usually called in the Buddhist world. And there's 227 of them for the monks. And for the nuns, <clears throat> there are 311. <laughs> because we women, we are a wild and unruly lot, I guess. Um, I think because it was a male world when they let the, nun, when they let the women become nuns. And I remember talking with one of my monk friends once, and he said he really loved having all these precepts because there was so little that he had to decide in his life. He just didn't have to think about things, you know? So, you know, he didn't need to figure out what he was going to wear in the morning because he always wore the same thing, and he didn't even have to figure out how to put it on because you put it on in a specific way. And some of us here... We're not monks and nuns, but we are in committed relationships with another person. And often these committed relationships, especially if they are formally and legally committed, but it's not just that, come with a set of agreements, right? You don't just happen to be committed. The commitment actually means you agree to live in a certain way, and they always demand that somehow we step out of the space that's all about I and me and mine. <clears throat> so whatever your situation is, to follow these rules, you have to pay attention. You can't just cruise along on automatic. You have to pay attention. And we have to become mindful. And we have to let go, just like... Heather's wonderful exercise that several people mentioned in their interviews today of letting go, you know, that place where you drop the Kleenex or the scarf or the shoe or whatever. And as I reflected on this, I thought, you know, there's lots of other ways where we do this. And then I remembered, um, sometimes I think of, of my hula practice as being the Zen of hula. Because you might think that hula is all about entertaining tourists in Waikiki. But I'm here to tell you, this is not true. And there's a lot of hula that is very, very centered on protocol. And if you're going to dance a certain kind of hula, you have to make your own skirt and you have to take the cloth down to the ocean and wash it in the ocean before you make it in a certain way. And it's like that. It's very complicated. So... My husband and I were asked to go with our group, our hula group, um, to the island of Kauai because some of the dancers, the ones who danced the more traditional hula to the chant, were going to participate in a festival there. And so we were invited to come along to be helpers. So I thought, cool, you know, I get to go back to Kauai. I'd only been there once before, and it would be nice to see it, and you get to hang out on the island, and... It will be fun. <laughs> and little did I know 
that basically if you go along to help on that kind of a thing, you let go of all your personal agendas. We had no time, literally no time for ourselves. And, you know, we didn't get to decide we wanted to go swimming or go for a walk or sleep for half an hour more than what we were asked to do. If we were told to be there at 5.30, we were there at 5.30 and we were told to help with breakfast. And it was like that. And um, it was quite a wonderful and really unexpected challenge, you know, that um, there's one thing to come to a retreat and you know you're going to a retreat. We kind of didn't know we were going to a retreat. And there was a substantial amount of renunciation involved. So it was, it was really an awakening experience and, and very helpful. So here on the retreat, you know, you've been asked to be present for the sitting and for the walking and for your work meditation to learn how to be really present when you're doing things like chopping vegetables and washing pots and all of that, brushing your teeth and taking a shower and noticing the mind and the heart when you are uh, either happy or unhappy or neither about things. And we've, in the hall, been tending to the body and being aware of breathing and sensations and noticing hearing and seeing if you can notice just the hearing and not the story and noticing, you know, all the stuff about the body, all the places where it hurts and all of the places where you go. Some of us, some of you aren't there yet. Oh my God, it's really getting old, you know? I can't get up off the cushion quite the way I used to, you know, leaping nimbly to my feet, you know, stagger up and wobble. So we're invited to notice the things that are pleasant and the things that are unpleasant and the things that are neither and to notice the mind and the emotions and the thoughts. I mean, you've really been studying yourself, becoming really intimate with yourselves in this last week. And we don't try to change any of it. Not while we're here. You're just learning to be present. You are trying to wake up to know them so that when you do act, you act based on the skillful states that have arisen. And when there's unskillful states that arise in the mind, this is for later really, when the unskillful states arise, then you recognize them and you're able to restrain yourself. So what you're learning to do is to be awake so that we will know when the sun rises. But this isn't particularly predictable. You know, it's not like our star, right? So our star arose this morning at 5.55, in case you wanted to know and it will set pretty soon at 8.20. So we know the rising and setting of our sun. But in meditation practice and spiritual practice, we don't know. We don't know. And often enough, it's not while you're sitting here on the cushion. You know, you'd think, somehow, if you sit late enough or get up early enough or sit without moving a muscle ever, Boom, it will happen. But it doesn't seem to do that. In fact, in the meditation world, in the retreat world, there's a tradition that often insight arises in the dining room. 
cool, huh? And there's a story, um, a much older story, about Ananda, who was the student of the Buddha and his chief assistant. And Ananda was the, um, the monk who was in charge of being present at all of the teachings and of memorizing what the Buddha said. Because this was, it was a time of oral transmission, right? So you had to, we didn't have any of these gizmos to record the Buddha. We had Ananda who was recording the Buddha in here. So he was busy, as you can imagine. <clears throat> I can't even quite stretch my mind to think about what it would be to be able to remember things that way. And the Buddha's life came to an end and they had decided to have a gathering of all the fully enlightened arhats who were left. And poor old Ananda had been so busy that he wasn't fully enlightened yet. Well, this is a problem, right? Because he's the only one who has all the stories. He kind of wanted to be there. I mean, after all, he'd been so close to the Buddha for so long. So he decided, okay, I'm going to do it. Just like some of you. I've heard so many stories of students who sit down and like, okay, I'm going to do it. And, you know, and so he sat down and he scrunched up his eyes and he gritted his teeth and he did everything he knew how to do. He probably relaxed some too because he probably knew how to do that. And the night went by, the meeting was going to start in the morning, and nothing had happened. And finally he said, well, <clears throat> guess I'm going to go get a couple hours of sleep so I can you know, do whatever they'll let me do. And he went off to go to bed, and it said, just as his head hit the pillow, he saw whatever it was, I have no idea what it was, that he needed to see that was the last little piece that brought him freedom and his release from suffering. There's a lot of stories like that. People who give up and then the sun rises, you know, but it rises on its own schedule. It rises on its own schedule. So for all of you, I'll bet for everyone here, there's been some awakening this retreat. You, you might be a little, you know, thinking, oh, not me, but I rather doubt that that's true because we awaken to so many different things. We see a particular pattern in the mind that we've done so often. We maybe for the first time realize, oh, maybe that's not so good. Maybe that is a place where I need to begin to change. Or you wake up to the fact that the hindrance of restlessness is really an issue for you. And that may seem like bad news, but it's actually wonderful that you see it. Because once you see it, you can begin to do what you need to do to change it. Or maybe you wake up and realize that your heart has so much more compassion and kindness than you had thought was available to you. And so you can carry that back out into the world. So there are many, many, many kinds of awakening. And in fact, when Stephen Levine wrote one of his books, one of his very first books, he called it a gradual awakening, where, you know, little bit by little bit by little bit by little bit, there's more and more awakening. 
So what we wake up to are the core teachings of the Buddha. And this is really important because this is where you begin to see these teachings for yourself. I was talking with someone today and saying, you know, Buddhism is not a belief-based system. We don't sit you down and say, okay, this is what you have to believe in order to be a Buddhist. I don't know whether anybody here is really a Buddhist. Probably a few of you think that you are, but some of us do or don't. And there's no place where we give you a little certificate that says, you know, (laughs) now you're a Buddhist. We teach you how to do something, and we teach you what to look for. So, one of the things that we see pretty quickly for ourselves, and I'm sure every one of you has seen some of this this time, is you see this very core teaching of the Buddha that's called the Four Noble Truths, or just sometimes just the Four Truths, you know? And these were the teachings that the Buddha gave first, and they are woven through all of the discourses over and over and over again. One year, I decided that I would read, um, read through the Majjhima Nikaya, which is, I think Heather referred to it the other night. It's the collection of middle-length discourses. And I wasn't reading, to, reading it to study it. I was more just wanting to go through it to see what's the sense of the whole thing. And I was doing a, a period of several weeks of self-retreat. So I read two or three suttas every day. And after all, I went, the Buddha had a shtick. <laughs> he did. You know, so if you come to a John retreat, you kind of, after a while, you, you know John's flavor. If you come to a Mary Grace retreat or a Heather retreat, you have a sense of the flavor of our teaching, right? If you go to a Jack Cornfield retreat, you have a sense of his flavor. Well, the Buddha had a flavor, and a huge piece of it was based on this teaching about suffering and the ending of suffering. So <clears throat> these are really four things that he noticed and that you also can notice. That's the cool thing. You can see this for yourself. So the first one is, there's a lot of suffering. I think we're agreed on that, right? There's a lot of suffering. Some of it's plain old garden variety pain. You know, your body hurts. You get injured. You know, there's disasters that happen. There's that kind of pain that just seems to go with the territory of having a body living in time and space, being born and dying. So that's bad enough. But then there's also the kind of suffering that's huge. And that's where we want things to be different from the way that they are. We get attached. We want more, we want less, we want different. And that's a place where... You know, it can cause some of the worst suffering. That's where we hold on. And actually today, as I was going over my notes and thinking about what to talk about tonight, I was remembering my very, very, very first retreat ever in the Buddhist world was with Stephen Levine and Jack Cornfield right up there in the big building of the Angela Center. 
And I, Stephen in those days was doing a lot of teaching about um, conscious dying and consequently a lot of teaching about what it is to be very ill and to be moving towards death. And he talked so much about how much more ease there was when people could move into that process and not hold on to feeling differently from the way that they were, that they were. It was a teaching which was hugely helpful to me at the time. So that's the place that we're really interested in, is that place where we hold on, we want it to be different, we want it to be permanent, we don't want things to change, even in the very, very subtle ways that sometimes they do change. So then, when we pay attention, and some of you may have noticed this, sometimes your suffering comes to an end. Did anybody notice that? There were moments when it's like, whoa, I'm not suffering so much. So get interested if that happens because you want to know what are the conditions for not suffering. And that's really about the place of letting go, of not getting attached. And so that's the good news portion of this teaching. It's possible not to suffer. And then he gives us in the fourth step, he gives us what's called the Eightfold Path. And this is kind of a list. I've often, you know, especially fun teaching with people who are involved in 12-step work because, you know, there's a 12-step path, but there's also an eight-step path. So maybe it's more efficient, I don't know, or <laughs> something. But in any event, it's eight steps and you can work with them. And so wise view and wise intention, so sort of setting your direction. And then wise um, speech, action, and livelihood. So behaving in a way that is not harming to yourself and others. And then wise effort, mindfulness, and concentration. So training the mind. And that all three of those components are part of this Eightfold Path. We'll probably talk a little bit more about it tomorrow because it's really, really useful as you go out into the world. So, so these are this Eightfold Path and this teaching on the Four Noble Truths when we begin to see that, even in small ways, even if all you're seeing is how stuck you are and how attached you are, and some of you may be going home, that's what you've seen this retreat, and it might feel a little discouraging, but again, that's actually good news. You're seeing it. The sun is, in fact, rising when you see that kind of thing. So then there's a few other things that, you know, are really important and that he taught over and over again. One is that your actions have consequences. I doubt that this is news to anybody here. But your actions do have consequences. Some of them are very long-ranging. Some of them will go on long after you are here on this planet. And some of them, of course, will come back to visit you many, many years later, and you'll go, oh, you know, this is, this is something I did when I was a child, or a teenager, or a young woman, or a young man. And, you know, we told you a number of personal stories this week as we taught, partly because the, some of those actions have had consequences over time. John's still talking about sitting in that cave and 
leaning forward and going back. And, and you know, at the time, probably wasn't even very much fun, I don't imagine. But there was a huge teaching there and, and it reverberated, right? The, the consequences of him place, putting himself in that position for that particular time. And, you know, you all have stories. Everyone here, we could have a lot of fun. We could stay a whole nother week and hear each other's stories. And everybody has stories that brought you here. You all have karma, if you will, that brought you here. The reverberations of your actions and other people's actions. And here we are in this moment in time, in this place, in Northern California, doing this practice. It's very complicated, actually. The Buddha says about karma, he says, you can't figure it out. You can't figure out all the karma of a particular moment because it's too complicated and your brain will blow up. <laughs> yeah, there you have it. So everything has consequences and as one of our teacher friends used to say, you don't get away with nothing, darling. So you don't. So then, as Heather pointed out so clearly, you wake up to what are sometimes called the three characteristics of existence. This is another place where the sun begins to shine. So we've already talked some tonight about suffering. That's one of the three characteristics. That, that It's not personal. It's not wrong that you are uncomfortable or suffering. It's part of the deal. You know? So... That brings to mind a story I wasn't going to tell, but I think I have time. So there's a wonderful story about um, someone who went to sit one of Goenka's retreats. Some of you may have sat a Goenka retreat over the years. And um, as he became older, they, he wasn't able to be, and of course there were many, many more retreats, he couldn't be there, but they, so they would play videos of him giving the introduction and the instructions and all of that kind of thing. So this person went to the retreat, just like you did the first night, you know, he pulls in, he doesn't know what's going on, he's kind of scared, looks around the hall and all these people, they put the video on and, and Goenka's giving the instructions for practice. This person's sitting there, he's really nervous and he hears, notice your desperation. He went, what? And he felt so, like, wow, they know. <laughs> they know, they understand that I must be, that I'm desperate. And other people here are probably desperate too because it's in the instructions. And he was so happy that he'd been told to notice his desperation. <laughs> so he kind of hung out with it for a while. And he went off to bed and he had a nice night's sleep and he got up really early for the next sitting when they played the instructions over again. And then he realized that what Goenka had said was notice your respiration. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's a great story, isn't it? Because we're always so happy when we realize that, oh, you know, I suffer and you suffer and you suffer and we're all kind of in this together, you know? And then we can figure it out a little bit. And one of the things we figure out about suffering is that being with what is really helps. 
And there's a Galway Canal poem that says, whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. Whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. So then we also notice that everything is always changing. Always changing. You know? The breath comes and goes. You know, it's there and then it's gone. There and then it's gone. The body sensations. Does your body feel the same way now that it did when we started the talk? No, probably not. You know, it's changed already. You may have thought you'd found the perfectly comfortable place to, way to sit, place to sit for the talk, and now you're wishing I would stop so you could move. You know, so it changes, and your moods come and go, and the weather changes, and, you know, where did this day go? Where did this day go? You know, this morning's back there with the dinosaurs. It's gone. Where did the retreat go? You know? It's so interesting to begin to see it. If you really want to see it, come to live on the big island on the volcano. Because there, the land changes. You know, it's amazing. There's acres and acres of the big island that were not there when I first moved there. And last New Year's Eve, 26 of those acres fell into the ocean again. So it's always changing. It's such a teacher about impermanence. You never know. You, know, you never know. And, you know, I talked a little bit about my accident, that moment when the truck hit us. And when I remember it, and I remember it very clearly, I also have come to reflect on my life could have ended in that moment. I am so lucky it did not. It's really astounding, all things considered. And it can happen that fast. I have this program, you know, I'm going to live to be at least 95, preferably, you know, 98 or 99 or 100. That's, that's the agreement with me and the world, right? <laughs> but, you know, maybe, but maybe not. Um, and so just you know, using that awareness of impermanence to be present and to realize how precious it is. <clears throat> and then if you're really lucky and you're paying attention, you're also going to begin to see, has anybody caught the present moment? Can you catch the present moment? By the time you are aware of the present moment, it's not the present moment. Just in that flash in your nervous system when the information goes into your brain. It's over. It's really, it's a little spooky, actually. Um, so with all of this, you know, with the suffering and with the constant change, then the other thing we begin to see is there's nothing really we can hold on to that is solid and that is separate and that is me. And, you know, you might begin to suspect that this notion of me is possibly a mistaken idea and that really you are, as my husband likes to say, you're like a helicopter. You are an assemblage of parts flying in formation. That's what a helicopter is. So 
you know, we are all assemblages of parts flying in formation and happening to look like whoever it is that you are. So, you know, I told you my story about the young me. You know, so where is, where is she? I mean, I remember her, but I'm not her. There's not even anything physical left of her. You know, all those groceries, those bags and bags of groceries that have come in and gone out and replaced everything over and over and over again. There's nothing left of her. But she was me. And I remember, what? You know, what? What? What is this? So something has kept on flying as Mary Grace keeps calling herself that. Seems to be some continuity, but it's not permanent and it's not solid. And that's where we begin to look at this whole thing of anatta, of no self. And of course, as I said, in a few years, preferably later than sooner, it will disband completely. And then there won't be any Mary Grace at all. So these teachings, the Four Noble Truths, karma, the teachings about the three characteristics, these are all observable. Do not take any of this on belief. Don't trust any one of us. Do not. And we're in good company saying this because the Buddha said it as well. Do not. Check it out for yourself. Check it out for yourself over and over and over again. So we realize when we observe them that they are true. But this word realize is hugely important. And this is where we turn towards leaving the retreat. Because to realize something means to make it real. To make it real. And so what is asked of us is that we inhabit our understanding. That we make it real. That we embody it. It's so easy to say, oh, I see that. Yeah, got it. You know? Impermanent. No self. But to live that way, to really understand how much suffering there is everywhere and with everyone and how utterly impermanent and fragile everyone is and how few real, there's no real boundaries. We're all really, really interconnected. That's another story. So we are really challenged to incarnate, if you will, to use a good Christian word, our practice, to put it into your body, to live it, to live it with the eightfold path, to live it by observing the precepts, to embody everything you know about kindness and compassion. None of this is a philosophical construct that you just have to think about. It's not a belief system, as I said, that you just buy. They really are meant as a description of reality and that they are things that you can try out for yourself. So again, and 
going over notes, I was remembering a story that I've told a lot at retreats of one of these places where I really saw something for myself. So I was going to sit down at Yucca Valley in the years that we had um, retreats at a place called Mental Physics Institute in Yucca Valley. Some of you probably have practiced there. Wonderful place out in the high desert of Joshua Tree. And um, my husband and I had gone down. His parents at that point were living in Claremont, and so we spent a few days with them prior to the retreat, and then he was going to take me over and leave me off. The retreat's always been in April, usually as the desert is beginning to warm up, and if we, when we were lucky, which was often, then you would get to sit around in the sunshine after a long, wet winter and get a little tan. So I wanted some suntan lotion, and I wanted Hawaiian Tropic Number 15. And in those days, 15 was considered to be good enough. And nothing would do. Nothing else would do. So we went to the drugstore. Mm, so sorry. We went to another drugstore. So sorry. We went to the supermarket. So sorry. After a while, <clears throat> my husband, who was doing the driving, began to be a little restive, and he looked at me, and he said, Attachment causes suffering. <laughs> it was great, you know, we still, it's 30 years later, we still laugh about it, you know? It was such a good teaching of, oh, there it is, it was real. It was real in my life, I saw it, you know, in a simple way, it wasn't any big deal. It was suntan lotion, so it was a little easier to take in. Oh, attachment does cause suffering. Or sometimes we go, oh, look, I said the wrong thing. You know, it was not kind. It was a little iffy. Wise speech is honest and helpful and um, timely and friendly. All of those things. It has to be all, not just one. All of those things. Oops. So then you see, oh look, I've caused suffering. I need to make my speech more careful. And you begin to make that real. Your friend or your parent or your pet dies. And it's awful. Hate impermanence. You just hate it. What is this stuff, impermanence? And we're floored. And where are they anyway? It's really weird when something or someone dies. It's really weird. Where are they? And yet, in that same moment, impermanence is a bit more real, and we become a bit more realized, and the sun has just risen a little bit more on the horizon. So whatever practices you do, this is why you do them. So maybe you meditate on a regular basis. I hope you do. Now, it doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be 45 minutes every time like we do here. But to meditate every day and slow down and stop for a bit. Or maybe you take on observing the precepts. That's also a great thing to do in your everyday life. Or maybe you read every day a little piece of some spiritual book or other. And maybe the reading, you know, I've had this experience so often, it's just what I need to hear. It's not often what I want to hear, but sometimes it's what I really need to hear. Or you keep a dream journal 
And there's something that comes up out of your unconscious that is also something that you need to hear. You go to yoga class and, you know, Rebecca has you do some strange thing with your body and then something opens up again and the heart opens a bit or you see something a little more deeply. You know, none of these practices are magic. None of them are magic. But they are more like, I think they're more like scrubbers, you know, that, those plastic scrubbers? And they, they scrub the grime off of, of the eyes of the mind and the heart. And then when the grime is removed, then there's some hope that we'll see clearly. We can really be ready when the insight arises or when the sun begins to shine. Pema Chidron says, we already have everything we need. There is no need for self-improvement. All these trips that we lay on ourselves, the heavy duty, fearing that we're bad and hoping that we're good, the identities that we so dearly cling to, the rage, the jealousy, and the addictions of all kinds never touch our basic wealth. They are like clouds that temporarily block the sun. But all the time our warmth and brilliance are right here. This is who we really are. We are one blink of an eye away from being fully awake. Then of what use, the surprised disciple asks, are the spiritual exercises you prescribe? Of what use is the retreat that we all just did? To make sure, the elder said, that you are not asleep when the sun begins to rise. So with that, let's sit for some time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.